Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. When we think of who's a high performer, our brains are programmed to think about athletes or C-suite executives at the top of their game. Their margin of error is small. The fan base is vocal and stockholders are looking out for the bottom line. But we should include musicians on this list as the hours of training, the level of skill, and the toll it can take on the psyche is a significant one. Dr. Noah Kagiyama is a high-performance psychologist at the prestigious Juilliard School in New York City. He specializes in teaching musicians how to use sports psychology principles to thrive under pressure. Noah, welcome to All Business with Jeffrey Hazel. Thanks for having me. So you've been a, a musician for quite some time. As I recall from the bio, you started playing, and I, I can't believe that I thought this was a typo. And I asked our team, that I said, are you sure? You started playing the violin at the age of two. So when you look at that, you know, look at that time, you've sort of, you've sort of pivoted into psychology. When did you make the leap and why? So I think there are a lot of musicians who start at a pretty young age. I have a friend who beat me by half a year. He started when he was a year and a half and he's now the principal cellist in the Cleveland Orchestra. And so um, it's not super uncommon to start quite that young. Um, But as a function of that, I think we just start doing this thing and we kind of take to it and we never really make the decision of, do I want to actually be a violinist or do I want to be a musician or not? It's just something that we've grown up with. And so I was in grad school at Juilliard at the time and had taken my first class in sports psychology. I'd never heard of it before. This is back in the 90s. And at the same time, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. You know, I could see the end of school coming. I was starting to freak out about what life would look like. And um, I realized I didn't want to play in an orchestra, didn't want to teach, didn't want to be in a, a chamber music group like a quartet. And even if I could win a big, huge competition and get all the prizes and concert engagements, I didn't really want to perform around the world either. And so I very quickly ran out of things that musicians do and was starting to worry about what my path would look like. And um, I did this international competition um, that year and I used all the sports like stuff that I'd learned in class. And even though I wasn't as prepared as I should have been, I played better than I had any right to. And uh, so it was the first moment where I realized, wow, okay, so this mental stuff you know, it sounds a little bit goofy when my teacher is talking about it to me, but but it really does make a tangible difference in performances under pressure. And and combine that with, you know, not knowing what else I was going to do after school, I decided I'd stay in school and pursue a PhD in psychology. And so all these things kind of came together in a way that made me realize, you know what, I never chosen music. And now that I'm in a position of, do I actually want to choose this for the next 40, 60 years, I started realizing it wasn't actually, I don't know if this will make sense, but it didn't really feel like me. Like I'd never really identified as a violinist growing up. I'd just say that I played the violin, but I I never used the term I'm a violinist. And um, so I started to realize that maybe I had done this thing without choosing it for many years and loved many aspects of it, but not enough to, um, to devote myself to, you know, 
the degree of, of um, focus that would be necessary to, to get at the level that I wanted to. So how do you identify yourself now? I'm kind of curious. Yeah, for whatever reason, identifying as a performance psychologist feels pretty okay to me. It, it feels yeah. like that might be a little bit more um, what resonates with me. And um, yeah. So a lot of that, of course, taken from the sports side, how do you apply that to, between sports and then the music side? And is there a difference between the two industries, I guess, the best way or disciplines that we'd want to say? Or is it is it is it the same? Like a lot of time when I talk about marketing, whether you're whether you're marketing a box of soap, a cure for disease, a political candidate, you know, or a product of any kind or service, it's 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 really just the, the dressing on the box. It doesn't make a difference. The principles are the same. Is it the same for what you're teaching? For the most part, I found that, yeah, the principles across those domains are pretty universal. Um, I don't remember who said this. Someone once said that performance is performance is performance. And I take a lot of stories from the world of sports and I try to apply them to musicians. And most of the research in this area comes from research on athletes in any case. And so I'm glad that there has been um, a pretty consistent um, crossover between sports and athletics and what happens in music as well. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm mentioned, it was mentioned that I'm in the Hall of Fame for speaking, and I talk to a lot of speakers, a lot of people who have to perform, and many times they, they talk about their stage fright. They talk about, you know, Jeff, you seem to be so confident, but I, I freak out right before I'm supposed to start and those kinds of things. How do you move people through that? How, we, can we, how can we manage that stage fright, and how do we conquer it? So there are a number of things that could um, address that sort of experience, but the one that most people are interested in is um, more along the lines of short term, you know, what can I do right now? It's, you know, the moment before I walk out on stage, what can you tell me that's going to magically transform my experience and allow me to perform at my best in this moment? And, and there are some things that certainly, you know, whether it's pre-performance routines or learning how to focus more intently on the things that are going to be more um, useful to your speech or to your performance. There are a lot of things that are helpful, but a lot of that has to be practiced well in advance of that moment, you know, in the weeks and the months leading up to it. And one of the things that musicians tend to avoid doing is recording themselves. We know that it's important to record ourselves to find out how we actually sound, how we look, uh, and no one really wants to do it, let alone performing for friends or colleagues, people whose opinions matter to us, and we don't want to sound bad in front of. So what will often happen is, you know, you have months to prepare for this audition or for this recital or performance, and you wait until maybe like the week before to start playing for other people. And by then it's too late. Like you realize all these things aren't as solid as they need to be, and there's not enough time left to really do anything about it. And so there's a, there's a violinist um, who's the concert master of the Philadelphia Orchestra, whose name is, whose name is David Kim. And he says that before a big concerto performance where he gets up in front of the orchestra and plays a solo, he will do a, a practice performance of that concerto, the full concerto. It might be 30, 40 minutes long. He'll hire a pianist to play with him. He'll find an audience at a nursing home or library or somewhere. And he'll do 30 or 40 practice runs of that concerto in front of a real audience, which is a significant investment of time and energy, even money. Um, but he feels like it takes him 30 or 40 um, simulations or, or practice runs to get it right. And so, you know, I think most of us know to run 
a talk or run a presentation for a family or some people, maybe a few times in advance, but doing it 30 or 40 times is a whole different level. And uh, there's another musician at the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra who did 42 full mock auditions, uh, you know, in front of a screen, in front of strangers, in front of colleagues, you know, sometimes with his hands cold, sometimes with his sticks all messed up in his bag and a whole variety of different situations so that he could be confident that he could handle whatever would come his way on the day of. So it's, it's not rocket science, but being able to structure our practice so that we do a lot of performance practice well in advance that tries to simulate what we're going to have to deal with uh, is an important part that uh, is probably the least fun experience that most people uh, preparing for recitals have, but it's one of the most useful and makes recital day feel a whole lot better. Well, but that's what you should be doing. I, I mean, you know, I always make a comment that, you know, if you, about failing, there's so many people that are worried about failing, you know, you get one shot at the performance. So what? No one died. If you make a bad, you know, one error, one, one octave off or whatever it might be. But I always make the comment, you know, if you want to be a maestro, you got to learn to play a lot of bad notes. You just got to get them out earlier. And, and, and why do people have a difficulty wanting to go through that process? Well, I think, so one of the things that I really loved um, that Michael had to say was this idea of separating, and I'm not going to say it as eloquently as he did, but something about separating um, who we are from what we do, you know, separating the ego mm -hmm. from our skills. And um, there's a, a trumpet player out in LA. He's the principal trumpet player at the uh, LA Phil. He said that when he started grad school, he had just changed his embouchure. That's kind of the technique in your mouth around how you play the instrument. And basically, he couldn't play anything. He you know, was a great trumpet player, maybe, but no one would know it because all he could do was sound awful at that point in his development. And so um, he had to face the fact that if he was going to you know, really attach his identity of who he was and his worth to how he sounded on the trumpet, he was going to be feeling pretty miserable all the time, every day. Didn't even want to practice, didn't want to go to lessons, didn't want to be around other musicians, other people, because it made him feel like a worthless person, like everything he'd done to that point in his life didn't count for anything. And so he had to, he had to find a way to separate um, his value as a person from his abilities on the instrument. And when he was able to do that, the real benefit to this was he said that it enabled him to be really honest with his playing. Uh, so instead of trying to hide what we sound like or what he sounded like, he would try to expose all the things that he needed to work on. So as a practical example of what this means is when musicians do record, there's a tendency to want to, you know, get warmed up in the morning and practice for an hour or two, a few hours, get really comfortable, play things over and over until your fingers feel really comfortable and you kind of get into the groove and then you record yourself. But the problem, of course, with that is you're recording yourself after you've played this dozens of times. And so, of course, you're going to sound better than you did when you first started. What uh, musicians who are able to kind of separate who they are from uh, what they do are able to do is they will record themselves first. So they'll get warmed up so they don't get injured. But then before they've touched anything, they'll record themselves playing it uh, in one take and it doesn't feel comfortable it doesn't sound their best but that is what they actually sound like and that's what they would have sounded like if they went on stage at that moment and then they can use that to figure out okay what problems do i have here that i want solutions to and focus on those things 
Yeah. Got to work the kinks out first. What, what's the one thing we need to do to elevate our performance under pressure? Because when you're doing that performance, it's live, it's there, or you're taping it, uh, recording it. So what's the, what's one thing that we could take away from this today that under, under, under pressure that I need to do? So this is maybe a good illustration of how I love taking things that I've read about in sports and trying to find ways of applying it to performing artists and musicians. But uh, there was this great Freakonomics podcast episode some months ago um, where they were talking with Sean Johnson, who won some gymnastics medals in 2008. And I'd never heard anyone say this before. And so it it was the most awesome thing I'd ever heard um, at that moment. And what she said is that not only did she have the physical choreography of each routine worked out and completely internalized and um, um, completely automatic, but she also had to create a mental script for herself, Mm. like to choreograph the thoughts that she would engage in for every second of this 90 second floor routine. Because she said if she didn't have that script planned in advance and practiced and developed trust in it, her mind would naturally go to worrying about getting hurt or worrying about messing up, worrying about the judges, competitors, teammates, and so forth. And so one of the most recurring things that I find myself working on with musicians is coming up with what that mental script is going to look like uh, for a musician. And, you know, different musicians use different things to kind of stay in the present, in the moment, as Michael was talking um, about earlier as well. And for a lot of musicians, it's, you know, a sound-based strategy, focusing on the sound that they want in that moment, instead of trying to self-monitor and critique and analyze the sound that's actually coming out of their instrument. Uh, Because when we're practicing, yes, you absolutely want to listen to what's coming out of your instrument and critique it and analyze it and judge it and so forth so that you can improve it. But that mind, uh, the headspace that you're in, when you're practicing and developing skill effectively, ironically, is essentially 180 degrees the opposite of the mindset that we want to be in when we're performing, which is to be thinking more about um, shaping the phrase or the kind of sound that we want or how we want things to come across emotionally and the character and the mood and so forth. Um, And that's not something that we tend to practice very much. And so this is where the recording practice well in advance and the practice performances is so valuable too, because it's an opportunity not just to get used to pressure situations, but to practice Uh, what your script is going to look like, what kinds of thoughts you're going to be engaged in at every point of the performance, and then developing trust in that. So you can listen back to the recording and make sure you're not rushing, make sure you're not playing out of tune, make sure everything comes across exactly the way that you want when you're not self-monitoring and critiquing at that moment, but instead trusting that your muscles will take care of the job you've trained them to do in the practice room. C-Suite Radio. You know, and it would be interesting to ask Michael this and go back after this and talk about the athlete side. But as a speaker, you know, I do that. I run through the script in my head all morning before the performance. I'm, you know, constantly thinking of it. I, I don't speak it, but I'm saying it inside. And I'm also knowing when I'm going to do this or this or, or I'm going to make that gesture. It's interesting that when I get on stage, it's also like having an out-of-body experience. I don't know if it's that same way for musicians, but where I'm performing, but at the same time, I'm going, okay, now step forward. Okay, now turn, you know, do the, you know, I'm a physical performer as well on stage and I use my body. Is that the way it is for musicians as well? Are they going through that same kind of 
iteration in their head and then, and then performance? To a degree. I think there are some times where uh, a musician will give themselves a cue, just to remember, oh, remember to lighten up here, remember um, you know, to, to project more, remember to loosen up in this area. But there's not a lot of micro-detailed um, instruction at that moment. You, you know, no one's, well, generally nobody is saying, okay, I need to remember to release my thumb like half an inch, and then I need to bring my elbow around 30 degrees, and I have to make sure to lighten up on my first finger and my third knuckle on my third finger, and my left hand has to do this. Like, if you're doing that, you're going to mess up. Uh, it's one of yeah. the surefire ways yeah. of screwing up. But, you know, kind of the general bigger picture kind of relaxation type movements, some of that is happening for, for certain. Um, what's interesting to me about musicians is when they're having those performances, when they're in the zone, a lot of times they have a really difficult time articulating or verbalizing what they were doing or what they were thinking about. Um, but when you do press them and, and kind of force them to, to try to articulate what's happening, it does tend to be focused on um, either sound, that they're focused on the sound that they want, mm. or they're focused on just kind of thinking about the pulse or the inner rhythm and just kind of feeling the pulse or they're focused on being creative in that moment, um, just spontaneous and an extra wiggle of vibrato here, something slightly different with the, the dynamics or the quality of the sound and, and kind of almost playing around with things, just trusting their body to do what it is that they've trained it to do. And also use the energy of that room or the moment. Again, as Michael said, being in the moment, you know, I can, I tell people that, you know, look, I know what I can do on stage and I know I can move the energy up. I can move it down. I can, I can get people to just, you know, hear a pin drop, you know, and, and, and that's that art and skill that you do as a performance. Let me ask you about a bulletproof musician. What is that? I, w I was reading in some of your, your, your writings about a bulletproof musician, and I didn't know what that was. What is that? For me, I think of it as, because there's so many things in performance, you know, musicians are very finicky, right? Like we want our hands to be warm. We want them to be not cold and clammy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, right. So we want everything to be just so, because there's such a fine line between good and great and such a narrow um, margin for error that we get kind of finicky about lots of things. And unfortunately, none of those things ever go the way that we want, or if they do, they happen so rarely that we certainly can't count on them to go the way that we want. So for me, I was just brainstorming words that kind of communicated to me what I felt when I was having a great performance. And usually the best performances I'd had weren't where everything went well. But for whatever reason, it didn't matter to me that my hands were sticky and a little bit cold or that my shirt was uncomfortable or that my shoes were too tight or that the pianist was playing too slow. Like none of those things really bothered me because I was too immersed in the present and kind of enjoying what I was doing that I wasn't even aware of those things to the degree that I otherwise would be. So for me, bulletproof doesn't mean being perfect. It's more about being so engaged in the moment um, that normal things that would get to you don't even really cross your radar in that moment. I'll ask you one last question, and I want to go to Q&A. So, Tricia, get ready. We'll come to you and then to Greg. Ooh, I, I want to think talk a little bit about motivation, because I think right now a lot of people are having tough times with that. 
with staying motivated because there, there are a lot of distractions. There are a lot of stress out there for a lot of people with COVID and their jobs and in the business. And so what, what keeps you motivated even when you don't feel like doing something or what, what should keep me motivated? What are some things that I need to be doing? Well, the thought that comes to mind for me is I always struggled with motivation growing up. I mean, you couldn't get me to practice. Like my mom would say, you know, you can't go and see your friends today until you're done practicing. You can't go outside. You can't read books. You can't do anything um, until you finish practicing for the day. And I still wouldn't practice. Like my day would consist of doing nothing. I'd be in the yard, like digging holes in the dirt because that was one of the things I guess I was allowed to do. Um, And so I always wondered why that was. And then when I got to Juilliard and I was surrounded by friends of mine who um, really seemed to enjoy what they're doing. I mean, not everybody enjoys practicing. Most people don't enjoy practicing. Uh, It's not a fun thing to do if you're doing it well, but it's worth it to them because being great at their craft and understanding the craft better is hugely satisfying in and of itself at the end of the day. And so that's when I really kind of made the decision to switch out of what I was doing because I found that I didn't, it wasn't gratifying enough to me on its own um, outside of the rewards of attention or winning this, that, or the other thing Um, to spend my time, you know, at midnight or 2 a.m., like geeking out about the details in a score and so forth. Um, So I think Michael might've spoken to this a little bit as well, but for me, when I hear musicians finding themselves lacking motivation, um, A, I'm often curious, you know, are you playing repertoire that you want to play or are you just working on repertoire that you think you should be working on because you're supposed to work on it? Or, um, you know, if you're tired of playing the same three-line orchestral excerpt that you've been playing for the last 20 years, maybe give that a break for a moment, pull out a piece that you haven't worked on that you love, that you love to listen to, that you love to work on, that present new challenges to you, that could transfer over eventually to this excerpt that you think you should be working on for the next audition. Um, But finding ways within what it is that you're doing that naturally feel um, more engaging. And a lot of times that can, even if it's, it doesn't mean quitting the bassoon or, or changing careers. It just means finding something within that, that for whatever reason, you're more interested in at that moment, you're more curious about. Um, and a lot of times it helps to jumpstart things and get the motivation going a little bit more. C-Suite Radio. Love it. Thank you, Noah. Tricia, let me turn it over to you because I know we got a lot of questions from the audience. We do. And, you know, uh, one of the one of the sort of themes that I'm seeing um, with Amanda Kelly's question, um, Cindy Tochik's question is really about the interactivity with the musician and the audience. And and how do you how does that work? You know, so so, for instance, how do you in how do you engage the audience that they're feeling something? And are you feeling it too? What does that relationship look like? And then, and then what is the FOPO concept uh, in terms of how that fits with the musician thinking about how other people are feeling about them or thinking about them or what they're doing? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, and I think there are musicians who might approach it in different ways. There are some musicians who, who almost draw you in because they're so intensely focused on what they're doing in the moment that they almost don't seem 
that connected to the audience, but the audience is more connected to them because they're, you know, they're like, they can feel the energy kind of sucking them in like a black hole. There are others who are much more extroverted and you can kind of see them playing to the audience a little bit more. I think in both cases, the musicians are still intently focused, not so much on the audience, but on what they're trying to communicate. Um, so I think there's probably that universality underlying what may appear on the outside to be different approaches. But I think that second part kind of then speaks to the first part in that there's this famous pianist um, named Menachem Pressler, who's in his 90s now. And, and he once said that he feels like his job on stage and as a musician in advance is to learn the music, go through the score, figure out what he feels is beautiful. What are the moments that represent beauty to him? And then to essentially curate those moments and share those moments with the audience. And one thing he said he had to do a long time ago is learn to not be so attached to how the audience might be reacting to all his hard work of curating beautiful moments because sometimes he would feel like he had a great performance, just spot on, nailed everything. And the audience response is kind of lukewarm. And then other days where he would feel like he wasn't really on top of his game, the audience would go crazy. So if he was continually kind of gauging, is the audience liking this? Are they not liking this? He would find himself actually not being able to focus entirely on creating the moments that he wanted to um, in his side of things. And so, so I think, yes, it's easy to, to be concerned with the audience. But if we can, in that moment, at least be more concerned with what we're trying to share, what we're trying to say, what we're trying to create, a lot of times the audience will kind of come along for the ride more effectively if we're focused on on that kind of sharing part from our end. That's that's fascinating. And I think one other really important part of this question, then I'll hand back over to Greg for another, there are a couple of other really amazing questions here for you, but, but when you are that artist and, and whether it's, you know, top performing musician, uh, or an athlete where there's an artistry measurement of some kind. Um, how do you prepare best psychologically in terms of that completely subjective judgment? And I think this is so important for us as business leaders because let's face it, other than the the hard metrics of financials, number of clients, you know, the things we use that way, everything else in a way is subjective. So so what are your best pieces of advice for us with that top performance where, you know, so much of what we do is truly a subjective judgment that others are making? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, because it actually kind of depends on if we're talking about regular performances or if we're talking about orchestral auditions. So we may not go the orchestral audition route uh, because there things are a little bit different, but um, it sounds a little bit similar to what you described in business. I mean, there are some, I don't want to call them rules, but you know, if a composer has written forte there, you're not going to play it super, super quietly because that's not how it was supposed to be played. And that's not how it's going to work best. Um, but you know, what does a forte mean exactly? That's where the subjective nature of things comes into play. And, and that then applies to every single note, every single moment. And I think what's usually helpful for many musicians is that they'll do a lot of score study. They'll look at the score. They'll try to get a sense of what the composer might've heard in his or her own head. They'll listen to lots of other recordings to get a sense of how other people have interpreted those same moments, um, whether they played them faster or slower, louder, softer, and so forth. Then at the end of the day, they have to find something that makes sense to them. They have to find something that they really believe in. If the character here is to be really majestic, how are you going to present that in the most majestic way? What 
does majestic sound like and mean to you? And so for me, the question that was really helpful, and I don't know if this will resonate with other people, but the question, do I believe in this? was really important. And it wasn't just something off the top of my head. It was, you know, I've looked at the score, I've listened to 30 different recordings. I have a sense of what this means when it's written this way. Do I believe in starting this section at the tip of the bow going up? Or do I believe in this amount of vibrato? Do I believe that this level of contrast and dynamics from the note before to this one? If I felt that I believed in those things and it was grounded in some evidence from the score or what other people had done, it made it a lot easier for me to be able to trust that and not be so concerned with what other people might have thought. So here's a question for you, uh, Noah. Now, you were groomed to be a concert violinist from a very early age, and, and from our previous discussion, you have kids right now. And I know a lot of folks that are watching and, and listening to this uh, podcast are, are, have kids. So what are you doing with your kids to introduce them to music or to sports that's different from the way you were raised so they don't burn out and find themselves at Juilliard or playing baseball and being dissatisfied with their lives when they hit that point? That's a really excellent question that I do not have a great answer to because I think my my wife's a pianist. She had the same sort of experience growing up that I did. And to some degree, I think the both of us feel a little bit guilty that we haven't um, been able to share more of our musical backgrounds with our kids than we have. Uh, we certainly tried a variety of instruments with them both, but I think for me, what was really important is that they try to find out who they are sooner than I did. I mean, I eventually did, and, and I'm, co I'm continuing to find out who I am, but, um, but it happened really late for me. So I think for my wife and I both, it's been important for them to explore other things, even if on some level we feel guilty that they're not um, playing the piano at this level or playing the violin at this level. And so they are actually doing things that we have no experience or background in like volleyball or Brazilian jiu-jitsu or, um, you know, arts, um, you know, painting and composition and different sorts of so things. Was this a conscious decision by you to push them away because you know how hard it would be for them to attain the level that you attained? It wasn't so much a conscious effort. It was more just trying to be open to what they were telling us um, while still trying to balance that out with the fact that we recognize a 10-year-old um, isn't going to want to practice. And so how much of that is you know, our reluctance to push them a little bit um, and how much of that is really us needing to honor the fact that maybe piano isn't what it is that is going to capture their attention um, in the most effective way. So it, it's been, we haven't quite figured out the answer. I wish we had it, but we've been trying to navigate it as we go. Understood. Um, one more question here. So we, we've all heard the, the, the idea that practice uh, you know, makes perfect, or is it, does perfect practice make perfect? So there are a lot of great sayings that all have, I think, some degree of truth to them. I worry, I totally get what the perfect practice makes perfect thing is about. I worry about that, though, because there's also something to be said for practicing taking risks, right? If you go on stage and the only thing you've practiced is playing something in a very narrowly specific way in your living room, wearing comfortable clothes, when your violin feels just so and your hands are this way and the acoustics are this way, then when you get on stage, 
and it's a huge hall and the pianist is doing something different and your hands feel cold and you need to project more, suddenly you're having to do something that you've actually not practiced doing. And so you're introducing a lot of risk in the equation. And so there's a lot to be said actually for practicing taking more chances, practicing doing things differently than you ever might. There's a, a viola teacher at Juilliard who says he doesn't practice what he's going to do on stage so much as he practices all the things that he might do on stage. And so, so I just want to make sure that this saying of perfect practice doesn't lead to people playing just in a very metronomic, precise, um, unchanging way, because that's not how the performance is going to go. And then you're going to be in a little bit of trouble. All right. One final question from Alexander Beskov, who actually seems like he was once a top musician himself, or at least it's his family is. And he asks, are there ways for people around to help performers to turn their doubts into at least an accomplishment to shape the achievement track record instead of a failure track record? That's a really good question. It's tough to do because our job when we're practicing is to notice all the things that sound bad and all the things that we're not doing well and to improve those things. And so one of the exercises that um, my students seem to find helpful is in trying to balance that out, not so that we're only focused on the things that we do well, um, but to be able to practice internalizing our wins and our improvements on a daily basis in a really tiny way. And so the exercise basically is after every practice session, sure, you're going to be writing down all the things that sound bad and all the things that need work and your solutions and so forth. But I also asked them to write down one very specific thing that sounded good and one very specific thing that sounded better. So it doesn't have to be perfect, just means it improved a little bit. And the specificity is important. You know, it's like asking your kids, how was school? If they say fine every day, you have no picture of what their day was like. But if they say one very specific moment in, you know, science class where they asked this question or the teacher did this, or then it gives you a much clearer thing and it's different every day. So for musicians too, if it's, you know, this note really spoke clearly or, you know, the slide up to this particular note was really even and measured and really juicy. If there's one very specific thing that sounded good and improved, it does help to balance out what we pay attention to when we're practicing. So we don't remember only the bad things, but we also have kind of a more balanced appraisal of where we're at. And we practice internalizing the things that we do well every day in a little tiny way. All right, we're gonna end there and have a few, few announcements to make. Actually, one quick question. You know, you know, there's that old saying is, is if you're nervous about uh, playing violin publicly or speaking publicly, you're supposed to visualize the audience in their, in their underwear. This is something that I was told as a kid. Did you ever, when you were playing in front of Carnegie Hall or Symphony Space or in the, uh, you know, at, at the Met, did you ever visualize the audience in their underwear? So uh, that was one of the things that my teacher told me uh, when I was oh, growing really? up. Okay. Yeah, and, and I remember this because you know she was one of my most... Um, important teachers that I had developmentally growing up. And this was her response to the nerves question. And at that age, most of the performances I were giving were in nursing homes. And so I went in the next performance I had and I tried those like, yeah, you know what, this is, this is <laughs> distracting and not helpful in any sort of way. And um, I quickly stopped using that particular strategy. Got it. All right, well, well, thanks a lot. And if you don't mind staying around for a little bit uh, longer, uh, Jeff, Trish, if it's okay, I'm just going to give everyone the um, a few things we have coming up at the C-Suite Network, and then, and I think we're going to hang around, we're going to loiter a bit, because Trish has a few things to say, and we're going to open it up to a few more questions, correct? Is that, is that what's going on? We'll, we'll, stick around right. for as long, we'll stick around for as long as people want to stick around, and we'd be more than happy to make that happen. 
Mm-hmm. All right, just we're gonna loiter like it's a Seven Eleven parking lot. All right, so everyone here, remember, there's a mixer tonight, and it's uh, and you need to be a member, okay? And it starts at six p.m. Eastern time, and so don't forget to set up and remember it's Eastern time. There are no other times; it's all Eastern time. Um, and we're gonna be discussing top level takeaways from the sessions today, from the things that Dr. Noah said, Michael said, and there's gonna be a lot of time there for you to introduce yourselves and make a, make a few connections. It's gonna be fantastic. The registration uh, link is on the chat, it's there. Uh, so you gotta sign up. Now this is what we have coming up. A lot of great things coming up. So save these dates, Thursday, July 9th at 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we have a panel discussion in partnership with Desert Financial. The topic is gonna be resources for small business managing the financial side of COVID. Everyone's gotta tune into that, gotta manage, uh, manage the books, watch the cash. Friday, July 10th, and every Friday, there's a celebration mixer that's 5 p.m. Eastern, the only time zone there is, and the link is on the chat. Uh, Tuesday, July 14th at 1 p.m. Eastern, where there's an executive briefing. The topic is getting your content in front of the right decision makers to increase SEO. Uh, Stephen Amiel is going to do that one. He's a great guy. He's He's a very fun speaker. Once again, that's Tuesday, July 14th at 1 p.m. Wednesday, July 22nd, we have another one of these, the digital discussions. Once again, 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, And the topic on that one is how to manage success through massive transition. Our guest speaker is going to be Robert Green. He's the author of The Laws of Human Nature. That's Robert Green, no relation, because I'm a Greenberg. Uh, And then also keep on your calendar, uh, Wednesday, July 28th at 1 p.m. Eastern, we're going to have another executive briefing. And we're going to figure out that topic when we get closer to the date. Anyway, those are things hopefully you, you, you have on your calendar. We're going to be sending you emails. You can always check in with Trisha or anyone from C-Suite if you need to find out when something is. Very nice people, these people from C-Suite Network. Uh, I'm a New Yorker, and I don't trust anybody, but I trust these folks. So the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to turn it over to Trisha, uh, and she's going to call out a few members and, and remind people of a few things. Thanks a lot, everybody. Thank you so much, Greg. What a great session. Yes, clapping (laughs) across the board. Um, Sarah uh, Berman is behind our C-Suite Network events. She's going to make sure that everybody gets uploaded now as panelists so we get to see you all. Um, And Jeff, uh, I mean, this this is like the highlight of our day, right? (laughs) We get to actually get to... I love it when everybody become panelists and then we can open it up and then let us have some free-for-all questions and... (laughs) It's great to have so many great members to, today. We had a lot of non-members on today too, Trish. So I want to encourage everybody to uh, come and attend tonight. If you're not a member, sign up. We had a number of people sign up while we were on the while we're here on the uh, call. So this was awesome. And if you're not a member, please uh, join. I'm not sure if Brenda's on still, but she just signed up. That's our latest, our brand new, <laughs> our most recent. Uh, C-Suite Network Executive Leader uh, in C-Suite Network. Anyway, it's so great to see everybody. We know some of you have to go. If you have to go, go. But if you'd like to stick around for a few more minutes, uh, we'll do that. And why don't we drop the slide, put up everybody's pictures if we can. That'd be awesome. Uh, get to see everybody. And there we go. We're starting to get a lot more people coming in into the room. And so we, if you have a question, I see you. No, Barry. Yeah. Look at Barry. There's Barry. Hey, Barry, good to see you. I haven't seen you for a while. No, I have. I I always promise to make sure you get to meet different C-Suite Network members when we have our open discussions like this. But just to get us kicked off a little bit, there was one question from Aaron, one of our our members in C-Suite Network. And he asked, Noah, if I can just pick on you for a minute until we get everybody loaded up. Just, Just 
how do you think of being in the moment when you're performing at that level as a musician? What is in the moment? I mean, Jeff mentioned, you know, I'm thinking about this, 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 and then of course there's feeling it. So how do you balance those to be in the moment for that top performance? Hopefully this will make some sense. Um, Cause again, when you ask musicians, what are you thinking about when you're performing? Sometimes it's hard to articulate, but for me, I was really intently focused on the sound that I wanted to hear coming out of my instrument to a degree. I was focused on the kind of feel that I wanted, like the contact between the bow and the strings, a particular kind of texture and contact point that you can kind of feel that was also important to me. And underlying all of that, I was kind of consistently focused on this sense of underlying pulse. So like a, you know, bum, 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 bum. Sometimes it'll be, uh, you know, it'd be different sorts of things, but there'd be this underlying pulse of rhythm that I could feel and kind of hear combined with the sound that I wanted in my head, combined with a little bit of a particular feel in my body in certain places that all kind of kept me occupied and kept me busy and essentially prevented me from being able to think about things that were not relevant. And I don't know if everyone's up for this I don't want to take more time away from everyone else, but there's kind of a, a fun little game that I have my students play that illustrates how difficult it really is for us to do two different things at the same time. So if, if you're all up for this, the task is basically to sing Old MacDonald Had a Farm in Your Head, but out loud, count backwards from 100 by three at the same time. So if everyone wants to try this, um, you can mute yourself if you don't want to count backwards by three and, and show people your math skills, but um, sing old McDonald had a farm in your head. Get that going. And now 100, 97, 97. Yeah. How's the singing going or how's the math going? Yeah, it's really difficult to do both of the things at the same time, right? So if I was engaged in those like three things throughout the whole performance, those were those days where it was magical and, and I just had a great experience on stage. Fantastic. I love it. Thank you so much, Noah. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.